0: The weekend just got more entertaining. It's Weekend Joe on Klaves Online, driven by Munganast St. Louis Acura. Hear from some of the big names in St. Louis and national sports every weekend. And now, here's Joe Roderick and me. I'm Andy Hanselman.
1: Welcome on in. It's another weekend of Weekend Joe right here on KlabesOnline.com. Hey, Andy, we are driven by Munganass St. Louis Acura. And also, I've been told uh, to start saying that we're also driven by Munganass Alton Toyota. We're we're doing both of them. Uh, Now we're throwing both of them into the uh, title. As I am your host, Joe Roderick, joined alongside by Andy Hanselman. Andy, how's it going, man? Joseph, I am well. Nice to talk with you again this week. Absolutely, uh, big uh, big week uh, as uh, we've had in sports. As slowly, slowly they're starting to come back. And I need to. I, I'm going. It's going to sound like I'm cracking open a can because I am. But uh, this is actually a can of energy drink that I, I am opening up right now, Andy. It's uh, a can of of Celsius. They uh, Celsius uh, new energy drink. They they sent me a few cases of it last week, so
0: I'm. Uh, each vibes yeah. during our uh, during our our, our uh, when you were caddying for me mm-hmm. last, week, which I, I saw you I saw you mentioned that on. You're uh, on your powwow with uh, lunch with Joe and Klaibs. Yeah, it, uh, we, we talked about that a,
1: a little bit I because uh, I, I knew Klaibs had probably golfed with Iggy and Tim in the past and definitely had golfed with Jay, even though Jay wasn't a part of it. And uh, so I wanted to bring that up. And you and I actually saw each other for the first time in a few months yep. last uh, last Sunday. I went out there and, I, I mean, I guess you can call it caddying. I, I I rode in the cart
0: with you. I had my mask. I had my mask with me as well. Yeah, but I, mean- I rode- yeah, <laughs> Joe, what you did, I mean, you you didn't help me read any putts. You didn't help me with club selection, which is which really aren't things that I really need help with, uh, you know, uh, from someone of, of, of your caliber of, of, of golf. That's and, and that's no offense, but that's just the fact of the matter. What you what you did provide to me was you were a good friend and you provided good moral support and you kind of got in my face when you needed to. Um and, and when i needed it and uh, I, I i couldn't have uh, i couldn't have done that without you
1: i i try you know i think i did make a few suggestions as far as clubs went but i don't think you it, listened to any of those
0: yeah well yeah there was one where you told me i you told me to putt one and i say no nah, I, I can chip this i got this but what i really failed to realize is that my, my chipping had really been kind of good all year but i was not chipping well last sunday and i and i should have listened to you and i should have and i should have putted that ball from from two feet off the green
1: yeah so but well, you advanced you made it on to the next round and we will
0: uh we'll see when what do you know when you're playing next i've talked to my uh, opponent it's going to be either an afternoon or a weekend so we can uh, i'm going to probably be able to uh to use your services again
1: I will. Uh, and I will do my best to try to uh, try to make it out there for uh, for that. So
0: when I played league last night at Gateway, I really wasn't trying to keep scoring. I was just kind of just messing around. It was a keep track of your total putts. And so that was a, a good time. But I was working on some things and I, I feel like I I'm, I'm getting my swing into a pretty good groove right now. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that.
1: Nice. Very good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's um, but I, I still I, I've been debating if I want to go out there and swing a, a golf club or not. I don't know. I don't know if there's any batting cages open because I'd like to go swing a baseball bat or a softball bat, too, uh, because from what I understand, though, one of the teams I played on last summer, uh, the league that they were in might be starting up in July. And then there's another team that uh, that has talked to me about playing with them as well, that it's the same place just different nights of the week so it would be uh that way i guess also start up in july so i'm hoping i'm hoping that it's uh, something that we
0: that we um that we, that we see soon joe i would consider a batting cage probably a minimal contact activity or place there would there's really not a lot of things to touch you bring your own bat uh maybe you need to feed a token into a into a coin thing Uh, to to start the pitching machine but other than that I, I really I don't see a whole lot of contact I feel like that's a pretty safe thing to do
1: yeah, so I, I just I haven't seen if that's uh, that's open. I go usually I'll just go up to center field in Fairview Heights, uh, do that, in the mini golf. But I have no idea if uh, if either one is uh, if any of those are operating at the uh, at the moment. It's not something I've really looked into. So that's uh, you know we'll uh, we'll we'll do that here soon and see how that goes. I, I just you know the gym I guess is going to open at the end of June, early July. I. You know, I've I've been doing enough outside. I don't really care to go in there and do anything like that yet. Maybe a few times a week. I don't know what the protocol is for that either. I'm still, you know, I'm still just trying to be careful about it and I'm in no real rush.
0: Yeah, you're gonna it's gonna all be okay, Joe.
1: Right. Exactly. So uh, a year ago, though, Andy, a year ago, as we record this on uh, on Friday afternoon, it was a year ago today that you and I were hanging out at Bush Stadium with a uh, with a few others. One of our sponsors, Kevin Miller uh, Hudson, my, my son was there and our good friend Matt Barra in a uh, in a suite. At Bush Stadium, watching the Blues win the Stanley Cup, and it's uh, it's one of the topics of the show today with the guest list that we have coming up. We'll uh, we'll dive into the uh, the Blues discussion, but first the guests on the show today. Bob Carpenter, the former Cardinal play-by-play announcer, now with the Washington Nationals, he is on the uh, he's on the show today. We're talking to him about the 1998 season because this weekend, Long Gone Summer, is going to be on ESPN.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. Which an Edwardsville guy uh, is the director of? Yeah, AJ Shank, uh, class of 1986, friend of my uh, friend of my cousin's wife, and I think my cousin knows AJ as well. So
1: I, I saw that your cousin knew him. I didn't know if you knew him or not. Yeah, I, I I am I
0: do not know him.
1: Okay. So we um, so that we talk about that with Bob Carpenter. I have the voice, Little Blues, John Kelly on. And then last week we had planned on having Earl Austin Jr. on the show. We had to move that to this week. So I talked to the awesome one too. We we just talk a little basketball. We talk slew. We just kind of throw it around a few different topics. It's always fun to talk to Earl Austin Jr. And we uh, we do that at the end of the show too. So that's what we have coming up for you today. But Andy, as a uh, you you much more. Uh, much uh, I would say a bigger blues fan a much longer blues fan than I have been uh, just a year ago today they uh, they win the cup and I, I would imagine that uh, you those memories still uh,
0: still weigh pretty heavy on you well like we've talked about many times that I, I have you on video you don't see me on video because there's some bandwidth problems I don't know what those problems are really because I'm plugged in hardwired but Joe you're you're wearing a shirt that I have. The blue shirt? Yes, I have that. Yeah. I have that same blues t-shirt, okay? Yeah. I can't wear that blues t-shirt when they're playing a big game. The hockey gods have made it quite evident mm. that it is just bad juju for me to wear that shirt when they're when they're playing a big game. So if you would have shown up to Bush Stadium that night wearing that shirt, I may have burned it off of you.
1: Andy, I wore this shirt last year. There are pictures of me wearing this shirt last year during game 7. Oh, you did wear it? I wore this shirt. Yes, this is the only blue shirt I own. This is the shirt that I wore. Okay, well, never mind. <laughs> it's only bad luck for you. For me, it is. Uh, it is fine. It brought a so, steal
0: for the city of St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. Joe, um, it was really one of the uh, one of the best nights of my life. I've always, you know, I, I, I'm considered myself, uh, you know, a big blues fan. I am not a huge, huge hockey fan. I mean, there are my, our friend Matt Grover. Uh, who lives and dies with the blues um, it's I'm, I'm not that kind of fan but i've been a fan since i was a little boy i remember i remember laying on the uh on the peninsula in in my in the kitchen of my parents house watching the the 9-inch color television of listening to dan Kelly or, or uh, ken wilson call the games on channel 11 or listening uh you know listening on 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 camel x or even back in the day there was a there was a little rift between the blues and camel x and throughout the mid 80s they were on uh, 6.30 a.m. KXOK back in the day. Okay. So turning into my transistor radio for that. Uh, June twelfth, 2019 was an absolutely incredible evening. Um, <sighs> it was um, – it, it really – and I was I was commenting on some posts today that I saw on Facebook, everybody reliving their memories of what, what they were doing a year ago. And I remember vividly thinking that it didn't really hit me. That we had won the Stanley Cup until Petro skated over to Gary Bettman, picked the cup up off the table, and hoisted it into the air. And there, there was a blue note holding up the Stanley Cup, and it was just still one of one of the greatest memories of my life.
1: I um, so my memories was from last year, being able to have Hudson with me, who uh, you know at the time not he's he's slowly getting into watching sports. He loves playing sports and he uh but when it comes to watching it it's it's been difficult but getting him to uh sit and watch a lot of the blues games last year he did that and then going to the uh bush stadium last year to watch it on the big screen. I know he loved that. And then afterwards just walking through the streets uh, around bush stadium and taking it all in and celebrating everything that we had just watched happen and him giving high fives to people and cheering with people and 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 everything that that was included with that he he still I I hoped that that was a memory that he would still remember and I asked him about it this morning and he remembers everything from it so everything that I would I asked him I would just say what did we do here what did what were people saying what were you doing you know he remembered everything so I was pretty happy about that that's great yeah Good try I did not ask him if he remembered uh, the the fact that you and I were able to get a uh, a bottle of champagne from <laughs> an, a uh, from a suite attendant at uh, at the at Bush Stadium, and we then took it out into the streets of uh, of St. Louis and sprayed it over everybody. Yeah, we sure did. That was that was one of the uh, that was one of those things I had forgotten about until I was remembering some of the things today, and when that memory came back, I was very very happy.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier as well, and I didn't know if we were going to bring it up because it was it was kind of a misdemeanor. <laughs> but <laughs> wait, wait, which part was the misdemeanor? Uh, I, I guess the, the, how we acquired the bottle of champagne. It was given to us. I was, was it wasn't I thought we got it out ourselves. We were told that we could go get it. Okay, well then we got well so, so it was totally illegal then A door was
1: unlocked for us and we were allowed to walk in there and go grab it.
0: <laughs> well, that's what we did.
1: Yes but yeah. yes we don't we're, we don't we don't have to say who or what or when or how or any of that. That is how we got
0: it What happened? Yes. We're shaking it up down there on Clark Street. And uh, popping that popping that bot that uh top off that bottle and just letting that thing explode everywhere. And it was it was a lot of fun and people really liked it. And I had a good time doing it.
1: Yeah. So I, I did not ask Hudson if he remembered that though. So uh but yeah, soon enough we'll um we will have uh, we'll have football or uh, I guess hockey back. I, I don't know what's going on with the NBA uh, right now because there are some details that have come out with that about testing and uh, the the people the workers that are allowed in there that are that are kind of sketchy and kind of up in the air. So no. Um, not sure what the uh, what the plan is with any of that, but we also uh, have no idea what's going to be happening with Major League Baseball. The owners came out again today and had a new proposal that the players have already said that they are pretty much going to reject right away which means uh, Rob Manfred the commissioner is going to step in and demand that they play baseball and then we're probably going to see the players go on strike so it's it's going to be even more of a mess than what it already is and it's it's
0: sad yeah Um, that whole situation with baseball is really really a hot mess now what's what's crazy is that they have a signed agreement in place already that they signed back in March for 50 percent of their wages for 50 percent of the games something along those lines um so they I mean they could be forced to be held to that since they since i mean that's a that's a binding agreement and it's going back to the to the negotiating table back and over between the owners and the players i mean people are just tired of it you know people are tired of of just about everything right now these days and um The fact that that they just they can't even they can't even come close to an agreement on what they want to do, because the owners are claiming poor, like every owner of a business does, and the uh, and the players say you're not poor, you can afford to pay us, so you're going to pay us. So Uh, you know, whatever happens, you know, like we've talked about it on the show before, Joe, that if there's no baseball this year, it could be until 2022 before we see baseball again.
1: I mean, they'll start the 21, 21 season. I would imagine if fans are allowed in, I, I think everything will start and go as planned, but yeah, there, there probably would be a work stoppage there as well. Uh, Jack Flaherty, once again, very, very active on social media all day long. And he is, uh, yeah, he, he has um, been very vocal uh, about a lot of this more vocal than, than most players have been. And he was very vocal earlier in the week when, uh, Bill DeWitt uh, joined Frank Cusimano on the press box and made uh, made some comments that, that caught, a, I guess,
0: national attention and kind of went viral. Joe, what I learned this week from Bill DeWitt is that baseball and Ballpark Village are not very profitable operations. That's why I, I
1: haven't bought a baseball team or a, uh, you know, made a, a huge area downtown. That's, that's one of the reasons I, I like, you know, I, I like doing things that make me money, like staying in AM radio for 10 years. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. When he, in, in all seriousness, when he said that they didn't build ballpark village to be a profit center, I, I kind of stopped listening because I, I just knew it was BS at that point. That, 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 that anything he was going to say during that interview was going to be just a crock. And it really kind of made me angry.
1: Yeah, it's, it's frustrating to hear because it, you know, you you know what he bought the team for and what the Cardinals are worth today. So it's profitable. You know that he's not going to put his money into apartments and to all this stuff if it's not profitable. You know that if the Cardinals make the postseason – they're very, very profitable, and they have a huge TV deal that's also making them a lot of money too. It's it's just it's so difficult to hear and to read, and
0: uh, it just it just sucks. It really does. Now, it could be that the profits aren't what they think they should be. Which, knowing the restaurant business, and you know the restaurant and bar business, it is a very fine line. I mean, you know, I, I think a bottle of beer. Costs a cost a, a bar owner, you know, close to, close to a couple of bucks these days. Yeah, and so they need, and it actually, it costs more than what you and I would pay for it in the store. And so that's, and so even if they're selling it at four dollars, you know, they're they're doubling their money, but they need that's a that's a huge huge amount of money. That, that's a that's a multi million dollar building that ballpark village. mm Hmm. And so there, I can see where maybe if their their profits are less than what they expected, I would have, I would absolutely believe that. But to say that Ballpark Village is not a money making opportunity, plus everybody in that building pays rent to the Cardinals via the Cordish Companies. I believe the Cordish Companies still run Ballpark Village, and the and the and the tenants inside that building pay rent to the mm-hmm. Cardinals. That's how the Cardinals make money off Ballpark Village. Yeah,
1: it's again, uh, this the the going in the media the way they have been is what makes everything look so bad. And it's what's going to really hurt the game in, in the long run, that whenever baseball does come back, they're going to lose a lot of fans. Uh, there's going to be a lot of fans that are going to move on to, to other things and to other sports and to other hobbies, activities. So
0: it it sucks. It does. It just really, really sucks people have had three months now to figure out if they have other hobbies and other things they like to do. Yeah. I mean, if they want to hold the, I mean, granted baseball is always going to have a fan base. That's, that's never going to go away. Is it going to shrink? Oh, maybe, but I mean, you need to get, I mean, that's why golf came back this week. They're, they're playing down in Dallas at the Charles Schwab open. Mm -hmm. Charles Charles Schwab challenge. I'm sorry. And, you know, golf got back as quickly as it possibly could because they knew, first of all, golf is much better on television than in person anyway. Uh, unless you're experiencing something like the PGA Championship for the first time, like, like what we saw here in St. Louis in 2018. But for the most part, watching golf on television, uh, watching golf is much better on television. So they needed to get that, that, those, that, the television deal that they have with the PGA Tour these that NBC and CBS have. They had to get that back on the air, and so they they did what they had to do. The, like you said, the NBA is well on their way. The NHL is well on their way. MLS is well back on their way to be in you know to, to getting back and going. It's because they know that if they don't, they're going to lose interest of the general public.
1: Yeah. And again, I, I'm sure by the time that Claves and I talk on Monday afternoon, there there's going to be some more news after that Sunday deadline passes and we get another counter offer or Manfred steps in. So we'll uh, we'll see what he has to say or what we have to say when that uh, when that comes. Another thing that I'm sure that we'll talk uh, about with the uh, the lunch show with Claves and Joe, but I did want to mention here that everything you know, with last week was uh, was very heavy on the the Black Lives Matter and talking about the protests and uh, we've seen that continue and shift into other different various topics throughout the, uh, throughout the past week, and one of those has resulted in NASCAR banning the flying of Confederate flags, which is a huge step when you consider where NASCAR is based and where a lot of their races are run and where a majority of their fan base is. Banning the Confederate flag, which many of those fans probably hold near and dear to their heart, is something that's going to – Upset some people And it's a very good call by them to, to do that, it it probably should have been done A very long time ago But it upset one of the race the drivers Especially Ray Cicerelli a, dri- a part-time driver Ray Cicerelli, a part-time driver
0: That is Joe
1: He's usually right up there with like the Jimmy Johnsons And the Tony Stewarts and the Jeff I, Gordons When you think about great race car drivers In, in the history of that great sport Yeah uh, Um I don't it, know, it, yeah, he is 50 years old, so a veteran in the uh, in the sport. He has won a total of zero races. Okay. He's won as many races as the Confederacy won civil wars. <laughs> He's 50 years old. He is a part-time driver of the NASCAR Gander RV and Outdoor Truck Series. Okay. He's not quitting immediately, though. He said he's going to, he would not return after the 2020 racing season is over. Right. So he's still
0: going to be doing this then. He well, said. What it means is that if they have the truck race here in St. Louis, over at uh, Worldwide Technology Motor Park, uh, that Ray Cicerelli, is that his name? Yeah. Uh, he might be racing there then. Because they have that I, suck race over there. So If we, he qualifies. He normally
1: if, finishes around 28th, 29th, I think, is his average finish. Yeah. He's not good. Andy, he's uh, he's not very good at it. He's currently ranked 51st in the uh, truck series. Joe, But I, he felt the need. He felt the need to speak out and let people know that he was leaving. Well, and what he did,
0: Joe, is he, he spoke out and, and just confirmed that he was a racist.
1: That that was something he did as well. Yes. Yeah, there, there's a lot of people that have been doing that lately over things such as either Black Lives Matter, and, and then having to retort with "But you know, all lives matter." You know that that kind of emphasizes where you stand on that, right. or you know, being so upset about the Confederate flag not being able to wave it somewhere. That too is it kind of shows you know. So uh, what Jeff Foxworthy thing was you might be a redneck. This you might be a racist if, and that's. You know, people are really outing themselves over this, and it's it's one of the uh, I, I guess benefits of social media is now that you they, the people are more than willing to expose themselves for what they are.
0: Joe, I believe that uh, Mister uh tweeted out his his desire to. Uh, quit. I thought he put it on Facebook. I thought I thought Facebook was where he where he put it, I but he has since deleted it. So tweet though. And NASCAR replied to the tweet saying that we had to Google who you were to even confirm that you that you worked for us. I think that's fake, right? I think it was, but it's still pretty funny. I know. I, I thought so too. I, I
1: aside to from us. I don't I don't know what the better joke is. You can pick both of them in regards to uh, to race Cicerelli. But I, I, I don't know if the better joke is that he hasn't won just like the South, or the other joke would be uh, he just struggles at all things race related. So I don't know which oh, oh. joke is better.
0: <laughs> the second one's way better. <laughs>
1: Is it better? Okay, Way better. So I'll go with that then, because that's uh, th- those are the two that I have seen that I really enjoyed of this, uh, of, of all of this. So that's uh,
0: yeah, he's, he's, he's bad at all things race related. Yes,
1: yeah. So we'll uh, again, it's you know, it's. Thank you for for what you for exposing yourself and letting us all know just how awful of a person you uh, you really are, Andy. We need to uh, we need to take a break as we have Bob Carpenter coming up, we have John Kelly coming up, we have Earl Austin Jr. also uh, coming up. But I did want to uh, make sure to mention ass Alton Toyota, one of the title sponsors here of the uh, of weekend, Joe. And hey, Andy, it is uh, it's Hybrid Month at ass Alton Toyota. They have the Toyota RAV4 hybrid, the Camry hybrid, and the Avalon hybrid. And right now, Andy, on all of those 2020 hybrids, you get 0% available for 60 months in financing. So if you've been thinking about making that switch and going to a hybrid, now is the perfect time to do it at, AltonToyota.com. You can go on there, or you can call Munganass Alton Toyota at 618-208-2400. Make your appointment today at Munganass Alton Toyota. Bob Carpenter, John Kelly, Earl Austin Jr., they are all coming up next right here on Weekend Joe, driven by Munganass St. Louis Acura, Munganass Alton Toyota, right here exclusively on clabsonline.com. This is Weekend Joe, driven by ass St. Louis Acura, right here on clavesonline.com. Hey, have you thought about uh, buying or selling your home here in St. Louis? Well, Kevin Miller with Caldwell Banker Gundaker. He can help you out in doing so. Been selling and buying homes for well, a few decades now. You can call him at 314-503-4999. That's 314-503-4999. That's Kevin Miller with Caldwell Banker Gundaker. We'll <laughs> be and welcome back into Weekend Joe here on ClavesOnline.com. We're driven by Munganess St. Louis Acura. And, uh, well, with the long-gone summer coming out this uh, this <laughs> weekend on ESPN, I wanted to reach out to somebody that was there and saw many of those home runs. And we uh, we head out to the voice of the Washington Nationals. He's Bob Carpenter, and he was, he was in St. Louis uh, doing Cardinal games back then. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
2: Doing well, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to our chat.
1: I, I am as well. And I guess I, I should first off ask, It's you know, we're sitting here in the middle of June and the last game that uh, that you saw, the last bit real baseball game that you saw, that's probably still a really nice memory in your mind with the Nationals winning that World Series. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it was interesting to be a part of the whole thing. You know, uh, those of us who work in low TV, we kind of get Out of the postseason, our network does have my partner and I on site for all the games home and road. So I was in Houston for the, uh, pardon me, for the four World Series games down there. And, uh, you know, game seven, it was a typical Nationals game. They were behind early. Steven Strasburg uh, was able to shut down, uh, you know, the Astros in Game Six. Max Scherzer came back and got some help in Game Seven, and uh, you know, the whole thing was just kind of uh, crazy the way it unfolded because we didn't know if Max would pitch at all. So. The whole World Series in Houston where they were behind almost every time and then came back and won, it was almost a microcosm of the regular season for the Nats who started 19 and 31. So, you know, they were 50 games into the regular season, and they had to win 71 of those last 112 games just to get to 90 wins to have a chance for the playoffs. Well, they went out and won 74 of those games to get to 93. So they probably had more momentum than any other team in postseason going into the playoffs, and it paid off a month later with the world championship.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, John Kelly, the uh, the TV voice of the Blues, also is a, a guest on uh, the show this weekend, and we were looking back because January, or June twelfth was the one year anniversary of the Blues winning the cup, and yeah. he too, you know, he he was the TV guy after that first round. They they had no more use for him, but Chris Kerber allowed him to come in the booth and kind of demanded that he come in the booth and call the second period of all those Stanley Cup games, wow. and he was able to uh, he was able to be a part of it with. That last year, but we we uh, we did just discuss how the TV guys they do get forgotten about once uh, all the national networks kind of take over.
2: Well, you know, I didn't know uh, that that had happened, and I think that tells you what kind of guy Chris is, because you know, a lot of guys when that's their chance at the big stage. You know, and, and uh, we have two radio guys, so on baseball, they deserve to do it. They're there every day and all that. Uh, you know, I was hoping maybe we could be involved somehow, but that, that wasn't in the cards. Actually, uh, you, you know, and with our team, the radio guys work for the club. The TV guys like me, we work for Mass and the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. It's kind of two separate entities, and it's a complicated relationship. But I'll tell you, that's awesome. And that tells you what kind of guy. I've never met Chris, but after what you just told me, I really hope I get to meet him someday soon. That yeah, yeah. is absolutely first class, top shelf right it, there.
1: It was an awesome story uh, last year, and it was an awesome story to talk to him about. And, hey, right now the Nationals and the uh, the Blues and I, I guess the, uh, the the Raptors too, they're, they're all still, you know, on those nice long championship runs right now because uh, <laughs> yeah. there's nobody out there to knock them off.
2: Well, it's interesting you brought up the Blues because the road they traveled was eerily similar to the road our Washington Capitals traveled the year before that when the Caps finally won their first cup. And, and I think hockey, it's such, a, it's such a grueling, physically demanding sport. I think more so than the nba the nba's a grind, uh, but you know hockey i mean you're it's, there's contact constantly, and you just got to be a tough guy to get through the regular season and some things are going to go wrong it's it's very hard to go coast to coast in fact, I think the last team I was associated with that won a championship going coast to coast was the two thousand and four Cardinals. I got a World Series ring from that team, but it's league champions not world champions and they led coast to coast they won 105 games it was an amazing season and then they ran into uh you know the curse of the bambino and all that with the red Sox and got swept in october
1: so it's funny team. you mentioned i mean you talked to guys that are on those that are that were on that team that 2004 2005 team and they thought those were those two teams were so much better than that 2006 team that yeah. ended up winning the world series yeah. it's it's crazy how that worked out
2: well, and in the two thousand and eleven team that had to go through so much adversity, you know just to make it in, I mean uh, you know I think that what the job Tony did with that cardinal team in two thousand and eleven was what to me one of the great managerial jobs in the history of baseball, the way they just came back after taking so many knockout punches uh, that they refused to let them knock out knock them out, but you know the caps, then the blues, and then the nationals so. Two of my... You know, uh, I, I didn't grow up a Caps fan. I grew up a Blues fan. I mean, the Blue. I was 14 years old when the Blues came to St. Louis in 1967-68. And, you know, we played street hockey. We're buying, We're going over to giesler Jorgens Sporting Goods on Clayton Road. We're buying hockey sticks. We're making our own pucks out of cardboard. We're wrapping uh, duct tape around them. We're playing on the playground. We're playing in the gym, anywhere we, we could play. You know, and I grew up a Cardinal fan. I mean, St. Louis was just such a graceful. Great baseball town and still is, but the Blues really came in and made a dramatic impact on my life back then. So to see them when I'm in my 60s to win their first Stanley Cup after all that playoff frustration the first few years, and you know, those first three years they made the Stanley Cup finals coming out of the expansion six teams in the west but they never won a game against the Bruins or the Canadiens. So to see that happen late in my life, uh, my friends and I really had a great time with that cuz we've been lifelong Blues fans. And then for me to watch what happened to the Nationals last year because a lot of people had given them up for dead. They wanted Davey Martinez fired. Oh, it's time to tra- trade Max Scherzer and get something for him, you know, the the you know, start the rebuild blah blah blah. You know, 5 months later they're hosting a, a hoisting a world Series trophy. So it it goes to show you how unpredictable sports are. Now, if we play a 50 or 60 game season, Joe, this year, if you start 19 and 31, you're done. Uh, There's no way to come back from a bad start if you're playing that short of a season, because baseball isn't a game where you turn things around that quickly. So this season, however it shakes out, will be really interesting. All these teams making the playoffs, and then you'll have to be pretty quick out of the
1: I'll, I'll we'll uh, circle back to that towards the end uh, towards the end here but it's it's funny that we're we're sitting here and we're talking about these championship teams we're talking about these you know teams that went on to win world series or stanley cups and the reason I wanted to have you on is because we're talking about a 1998 cardinal team that was not close to making the playoffs yeah. that year <laughs> and the wins and losses really, you know, that, that didn't go well, but the one story that did and was there all year long was Mark McGuire. And we, we do a feature here on, uh, on claves online. We do this day in Cardinal history, and we've had various voices of Rick Hummel telling stories and Mike Shannon telling stories and John Rooney throughout the years. And we I think it was in May when that seemed to be when Maguire really started to heat up and yeah. it seemed like we had so many memories of him there where it was you know, what 25 home runs after before June 1st and he had it on like May 25th I, I right. mean he was just it, at what point in that first of all how many games did you call for the Cardinals in 1998?
2: <laughs> Well, I think my contract called for 90 games on TV at that time. That was still back at a time when teams were not carrying every home game like they are now. There's just so much money now coming from the regional sports networks and all that that you have to carry every game, and the fans demand that. We were still not doing that back in 98. So if I remember my contract with the Cardinals back at that time – it was for about 90 TV games. I, I helped out here and there on radio. Uh, if Jack had to make some games or Mike had to make some games or whatever, so I probably called somewhere between 900 games that year. So,
1: so you saw. I mean, you saw more than more than half of the the yeah. games. Probably more than half of the home runs. At what point in that year, or does it go back to maybe '97 when you first see McGuire in a Cardinal uniform and you think this this guy might have a chance?
2: You know, it's interesting, Joe, that you bring up when I first saw Mark McGuire in a Cardinal uniform. I've never told this story publicly. Uh, The night he came to the Cardinals after the trade with the A's at the trading deadline in 97, I was on radio with Mike in Philadelphia that night. And uh, actually, actually, I think maybe I was even on TV that night and Mike was on radio. He and I we're the only two guys in the clubhouse. We uh, we kind of, uh, you know, hey, I'm hanging out with the big boy. If he if he wants to be in the clubhouse when Mark McGuire shows up from the airport, we're going to be in the clubhouse. <laughs> so I'm hanging out with Mike. And I'll never forget, Mike and I are just sitting there in the empty clubhouse at Veterans Stadium. Everybody's, you know, out on the field doing their pregame thing. Buddy Bates... Went to the Philadelphia airport, the Cardinals clubhouse guy, to pick up Mark. And here comes Mark McGuire walking into the Cardinal clubhouse, larger than life. All of his gear is green and gold. You know, his duffel bag and all this stuff he's got from the Ace. And uh, Mike and I were actually sitting there talking to Mark. Introduced ourselves. I had interviewed Mark a couple of years before that on an ESPN spring training game out in Arizona. He probably didn't remember me, uh, so I reintroduced myself. We had a nice chat, and I'll never forget because of what you just said. That this you triggered this sitting there watching Mark McGuire put on the red, white, and gray. Cardinal road uniform for the first time he had always been in green and gold. And all of a sudden here he was in red and blue, uh, you know, in the gray uni, that's something I'll never forget. Uh, I don't, th- I don't think, I don't think he hit a Homer that night, but I think he hit one the next night because he had traveled coast to coast to join the team. So I think, uh, I think I remember on our last telecast on KPLR in 97 as, uh, Ozzie and Rich Gould and I signed off, I think I said, with visions of McGuire dancing in our heads, we look forward to 1998. Well, look what happened in 1998. So Mark did give us the feeling in 97 that big things were about to happen. And you know, Joe, the Cardinals were never really built on power. Whitey Ball. Vince Coleman, Lou Brock, Ozzy, Willie McGee, all those guys running the bases, you know, that was, that was Cardinal baseball. And uh, to have Mark come in and totally change that whole thing for a couple of years was something that was kind of unexpected. It was something unique. And uh, it, it changed the mindset there for a while of how we pictured baseball in St. Louis.
1: I know what things are like in in the press box when something big happens, and you you have your people that you sit next to every game that you talk to every game. Which what home run sticks out in your mind where you turn to your broadcast partner, whoever it was that night, and you just kind of looked at that ball flying, and you just kind of went, "Holy!"
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, you know i i have to I have to owe it to Mark because my home run call "See you later," where I kind of pause and draw it out that was because he hit the ball so high I kind of knew it was leaving the ballpark but I kind of wanted to draw out the call until the ball actually landed because before then my home run call was kind of like see you later you know well (laughs) then Mark started sitting these moon shots and we got to wait forever for them to come down I I remember Ozzie uh, Ozzie was in his first year uh a broadcasting with me in '97, he had just retired, and he was doing the home games with me and Rich Gould, and then Rich would go on the uh, uh, on the road with me for the KPLR telecast. But I remember one night he hit a ball, and Ozzie and I just looked at each other, and our our eyes were as big as saucers, and we just couldn't believe it. And we showed the replay, and Ozzie had one of the great lines I'll I'll never forget. He said, "Bob." He's, he looked at the pitch. It was like a fastball right down the middle, waist high. He said, Bob, that ball was already out of the park. All he had to do was swing. And that was a great line by Ozzy. I don't know if that's a line that ball players use on, on a, you know, on a tater or a, uh, you know, a ball right down the middle. Uh, we had some amazing moments. I do remember um, one time, I think – I can't remember where we were. We were on the road. 1998 was the first time I ever used a laptop during my telecasts because I wanted to have the Cubs game, you know, the box score and all that. Not as advanced as the stuff we get. Now, that was 22 years ago. But I could keep track of the Cubs, and I could keep track of of Sammy's at-bats. And Mark was coming up to hit. We were on the road somewhere. I'm thinking it was in Pittsburgh. And I said something to the effect that Sammy Sosa has just hit his 52nd home run. Mark wouldn't hit number 56 right here, would he? Next pitch. I said, yes, he would see you later. It's like, it's like they knew what the other guy was doing and Sammy was pushing Mark and Mark was reacting to Sammy. And then of course, when the Cubs came to St. Louis, the first week of September, when Mark actually broke the record hitting that Rick Traxel pitch out of the ballpark, uh, low line drive down the left field line, Sammy's out there in right field, you know, doing the whole this, you know, and all that stuff. Um, it's like it was meant to be that the two of them were pressing each other. I got to tell you one more story. That's really interesting. Hey buddy, how you doing? (laughs) One one more story. That's really interesting. We were in Milwaukee at old County stadium, Mark McGuire, Joe, I don't know if you know this or not. Mark actually hit 71 homers that year. Yep. Yeah. But But Bob Davidson took one away from him in Milwaukee. The ball cleared the left field wall That old ballpark had a raised platform back there with a rail on it, and then the bleachers started and went up. That ball went over the outfield wall, hit that railing, and came right back out onto the field. And Bob Davidson stopped Mark. At second base, and took a, a home run away. We had the replays and all that, but nobody was using replay back then. And so Mark actually hit seventy-one home runs, and he had one taken away from him in Milwaukee at that old ballpark.
1: There was that—that that one was controversial, and then there was the late-season game when McGuire got ejected in the first inning. That—that uh, that upset a lot of people too. I remember—I remember that—that uh, I, I remember uh, that pretty well uh, also.
2: Yeah, I don't really remember that. That must have been a game I didn't do. I don't have a recollection of that one. But whoever the umpire was, nobody came to the ballpark to see him that night. They came to see Mark McGuire. Getting us back to what you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, that this was something totally different for us with Cardinal baseball. And throughout the season, you know, I I grew up a Cardinal fan, uh, 64 was my first championship season. I was 11 years old. Unbelievable comeback to get into the World Series and win the thing against the Yankees. 67, 68, 82, 85, 87. Finally getting back to the playoffs under Tony in 96. But, you know, this was different. So I was always a team guy. I wanted to see the Cardinals do well as a team. And this whole thing about rooting for one guy – while the team wasn't having a very good season, was really different to me. The only thing that put a damper on 1998 for me was the fact the Cardinals were not in the race the Cubs were, and, you know, maybe that pumped up Sammy a little bit too because the Cubs had a lot of take as a team. And, uh, you know, that was the only bummer for that season that I can think of because uh, the Cardinals just weren't in contention the last month or more of that season.
1: I, I'm looking here. It was August twenty uh, August 29th. McGuire was at 54 home runs, and Sam Holbrook ejected him from the game.
2: For arguing a ball strike call, yes. I suppose? yeah interesting first inning um
1: as i as I'm looking through here um yes first inning of the uh first inning of the game yeah
2: that's that's an awfully i don't care what the batter says but you know if you're an umpire you got to be thinking maybe about the bigger situation and that's a that's an awfully quick trigger of that happened in the first inning yeah. That's all I can say about it. Cause I really don't remember.
1: Yeah. That was, I, I was, I, that probably wasn't a game that you were doing then. Cause I imagine, I, I would imagine that's probably something that you would have, uh,
2: yeah. you would remember. Ozzy and I probably would have gone crazy had that happened and we were doing it. Uh
1: did they, did ESPN reach out to you at all? Or are you going to be in the, uh, in the documentary that we're going to see this, uh, this Sunday, or
2: maybe just hear your voice on a few calls? Uh, no, I'm, I'm as far as I know, I'm no part of it yeah. unless there's some old sound bites. Yeah. That uh, and because I know I I saw something online. Uh, there was a Stan Musial. Thing That's been out there for many years. And I was just watching it one night late at night when I was bored. And all of a sudden I came up on camera talking about Stan Musial, my boyhood hero. And I I had forgotten that that happened. So there may be there may be something in there. I don't know. Uh, But I haven't been contacted by ESPN. I worked for them for almost 18 years from 1988 till almost 06. Uh, Hopefully some of the calls will be in there. I'd I'd like to be part of it. Uh, We'll see. But uh, nobody's reached out to me regarding that.
1: With what we saw ESPN do with the Bulls documentary, The Last Dance for Those Five Weeks and I like some it. of the yeah. Some of the memories that it brought back, I, I was, I grew up on the South side of Chicago and yeah. I was a kid then. I mean, I was, you know, 12 yeah. years old when they won their six championships. So you can, you know, take it back and figure out, you know, the memories that I might've had or the memories that escaped me over the years. But is, is there something that you are really looking forward to possibly seeing how they do or something that they're going to cover during this, uh, this documentary that, that we're going to see on
2: Sunday? Well, it'll be interesting to see if they bring the Andrew thing into it at all. You know, ESPN considers itself, uh, you know, journalism on TV and all that. So uh, they would probably be criticized or be remiss if they didn't do that. I hope it doesn't become like a major, major thing. Uh, you know, it's interesting when I think of that 98 season, as the home run started to mount, I remember we were in Milwaukee. Maybe it was the series when he hit that home run. Our our guy, uh, Joe Walsh, who was the Cardinals security guy, uh, he was traveling with us. And that's the first time I'd ever seen a team security guy travel with a baseball team in my career. So in 1998, I was in about my 15th year of doing baseball. I'd never seen a security guy with the team on the road. Uh, But Joe was there and he was sneaking Mark in and out of hotels, through the kitchen, up and down the freight elevator, you know, using the room service elevator and the maintenance, you know, just to get Mark in and out of hotels. Uh, It was like traveling with Mick Jagger or the Rolling Stones or Paul McCartney or or something. It was just kind of crazy. But, I, you know, I think about the things that happened during that season. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Like I said, it was still something really new to us. I thought Mark handled it remarkably well. And KPLR, you know, we were one of the rights holders. Uh, Fox Sports wasn't called that back then. I think it was, um, it'll come to me. They had a different name for the cable network uh, back at that time. It it morphed into Fox Sports Midwest, but uh, my GM At Channel 11, Bill Annecy was all over me trying to get an exclusive interview with Mark McGuire. Uh, So, you know, here we come the last weekend of the season. He's sitting on 65 home runs. The Expos are coming to town. I asked Mark like three times. My boss is driving crazy he's asking for a 15 minute sit down interview. If you want to do it at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'll be here one in the afternoon, whatever. Uh, And he turned me down a couple times. He said, no, I just don't want to do it. Well, finally on Thursday, last weekend, I asked him one more time. I said, look, he asked me to ask you one more time. Mark said to me, when's it going to air? I said, it's going to air Sunday night after the last game of the regular season. He says, I'll see you in the Wex studio here at the ballpark at one o'clock tomorrow afternoon. So Mark granted me the interview. It was just him and me and a, uh, our photographer in there. And we sat down at uh, Wex at a studio that was off the hallway outside the Cardinal clubhouse there at old Bush stadium. And uh, we had a, I think we, I did think we did like a 20 minute interview. He talked about his dad, Mark's dad had polio, when he was a young boy, he really couldn't play sports, and I asked Mark what it meant to him to be able to give something like this to his dad. And for the first time, and probably the last time in my life, I saw Mark McGuire get a little teary-eyed. Now he did get a little teary-eyed earlier that month when he, you know, was presented the ball uh, by uh, the groundskeeper Tim, who had caught the ball out in left field when he broke uh, Roger Maris' record. But Mark got a little emotional talking about his dad. Uh, I met his brother Dan who was a really good quarterback at San Diego State great athletic family I think there was another brother who was an accomplished athlete and uh, so you know maybe my perspective on that season is a little bit different because I had the opportunity to see some things up close and experience some things personally with Mark Uh, and I remember a conversation we had in early September, I think it was like the first of September, and we were just in the middle of the clubhouse. I said, "Well, how many are you, how many home runs do you think you're going to hit?" He goes, "How many do you think I'm going to hit?" I said, "I think I think you're going to hit 66 because Route 66 goes right through St. Louis, so why don't you hit 66?" And, and he said something to me like, if I hit 66 home runs, I'll kiss you in front of everybody in the middle of the, middle of this clubhouse. <laughs> well, he didn't hit 66, he hit 70. Uh, but, you know, just some of the little things that you remember, really some things I had forgotten about, uh, you know, that you're kind of bringing back for me now. Because, again, it's 22 years ago. I've probably seen 4,000 baseball games since then. So, you know, you forget a few things, but there's some other things you'll never forget.
1: You know, and here we sit. It's, It's June 11th right now when we're recording this, and we still have yet to have a baseball game played in 2020. It feels like a lockout, and people said that 98, that home run chase, saved baseball, brought it back. What's it going to take now? Because between the owners and the players and the public going at each other, there are a lot of fans that are upset with the game of baseball. Yeah. Is it going to take something like this again? I mean, not, not a home run chase, but something special to bring those fans back once baseball eventually starts
2: again. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe Steven Strasburg goes 12 and oh and strikes out 200 batters or some ridiculous, I, I don't know uh, because in a short season, it's hard for numbers to build up, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, with this, and by the way, just to go back to one thing real quick, because you you triggered something else there saying the home run chase brought people back to baseball. I was in my car going home after the uh, game of September seventh, I think it was seventh or eighth when McGuire hit the Homer off tracksful to hit his sixty second of the year. I had Cam Wex on my car radio, and a lady came on, and she was she was crying on the radio. She said, "When I was a little girl, my dad took me to the baseball game. We learned how to keep score. We shared baseball." And she said, "After happened, after what happened nine, uh, four years four years ago in '94," she said, "I turned away from baseball. I was mad. I was mad at the players. I was mad at the owners. I was mad at the sport." And she said, "What happened in our ballpark tonight?" has brought me back to baseball. And I just wanted to tell everybody that. I mean, the lady was in tears on the radio. And I think that spoke for a lot of fans and what they were feeling that night. So this whole thing that we're looking at now, Joe, baseball's a game of numbers. I'm thinking about Albert Pujols. Albert's probably lost his chance to hit 700 home runs. I don't know what's going to happen with his contract. I think this is the last year of his deal with the angels. And I think he's sitting on 656 or something like that. And he'll probably never, he probably won't have a chance to hit 700 now, which is a sad thing because I always hoped that Albert would get up there. Uh, He probably wouldn't reach bonds and Aaron. I thought he could challenge Babe Ruth's record and, um, You know, just some other players, Uh, our own Max Scherzer piling up some Hall of Fame numbers, young guys who are trying to establish themselves in the game to be recognized as bona fide major leaguers. Uh, This short season, uh, if and when it's played, is going to have an effect on different players and their careers that we can't predict right now. And we may be hearing some of these stories two, three, five years down the road.
1: Well, Bob, I really appreciate the time uh, you gave us. Hopefully you have a chance to enjoy the, uh, the documentary and it brings back even more memories for you this weekend. And who knows when, but hopefully uh, soon enough you'll be uh, back in Bush Stadium calling a uh, Nationals and Cardinal game.
2: Well, hope so, Joe. Probably not this year because we're in the East and they're in the Central, but hey, uh, we just saw the Cardinals in the uh, League Championship Series. Uh, Why not do that again before somebody goes on to the World Series? So thanks for having me on. Uh, Nice little trip down memory lane, and uh, thanks for triggering some of those thoughts in my mind. Absolutely, Bob. Thank you so much. See you soon.
1: And that is Nationals play-by-play voice Bob Carpenter joining us here on Weekend. Joe, driven by Munganas, St. Louis Acura. And hey, since that interview was recorded, it actually has come out that you'll be able to hear Bob Carpenter's home run calls on a, a few of the home runs that we're going to see in Long Gone Summer coming out on Sunday night. It's ESPN's newest 30 for 30. So make sure to check that out and relive the 1998 home run chase with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. As I mentioned, weekend Joe driven by Munganass St. Louis Acura. Also sponsored by Kevin Miller of Caldwell Banker Gundaker. Give him a call today. 314-503-4999. That's 314-503-4999. Kevin Miller with Caldwell Banker Gundaker buying and selling homes for 30 years. His needs, or I should say your needs become His needs. So they are his needs. When you are in the market to buy or sell a home, Kevin Miller is your guy making top priority of anything that you need. 314-503-4999 or find him online at smartmovestl.com. Take a break. Back with John Kelly, the voice of the Blues, one-year anniversary of the St. Louis Blues winning the Cup. Talk about that with him right after this. Recent events have shown that life can turn in an instant. This has caused many people to realize that estate planning is essential. The InSkip Law Firm is here to help with everything from trusts and wills to power of attorney, deeds, and probate. They have systems in place to service your needs without having to have an in-person consultation, flat fees so that you know what you're paying ahead of time, and they make the whole process easy. Call now 314 314- 818 Just a quick chat and you decide together what services are right for your situation. That's the InSkip Law Firm, I-N-S-K-I-P. And remember, the choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertising. And welcome back in to Weekend Joe, driven by Munganass St. Louis Acura here on Klaibs Online. As we head back out to our guest line and we welcome in, he is the voice of the blues with Fox Sports Midwest. He is John Kelly and he joins us now. John, how are you?
3: I'm doing great. How are you today?
1: I'm good, and John. I guess I should. How how are you feeling? I know you know it seems. I don't know how it seems for you, but it seems like you know years ago when 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 the news came out about you you having COVID nineteen. Uh, how how is everything uh, feeling now that we're a few months removed from that?
3: Yeah, I feel great, and it, you're right. It, it does feel like it was six seven months ago when in reality it was in mid March, and and I, I did have uh, coronavirus and pneumonia. So for a couple of weeks in mid-March, I was sort of down and out. But really since April 1st, I've been in fine. And, you know, I'm exercising and and walking a lot and and doing everything that, you know, I I did before. So I'm feeling great, which is the great news.
1: The the voice sounds uh, the same. So I'm guessing that you're ready to call some games, even though have you been told anything about what the plan is when, when play resumes? Well, as far as the the
3: television aspect of it, um, we've been told that it's almost 100% we would do the games from St. Louis in a studio. And what they would do is um, they would have a world feed coming out of of the hub city, wherever that happens to be. And, and all the local broadcasters and perhaps even the national, I'm not even sure, but for sure, the local broadcasters would all do the games off a of monitor in their respective home cities. So that's what I'm anticipating. That's what I've been told. Um, but until it's 100 percent, I can't say for sure.
1: Have you ever called a game like that? No, I haven't.
3: Um, my, My younger brother, Dan, though, has for Big Ten Network. Um, up in Chicago, and, you know, he said it's 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 a bit more challenging, and and obviously you're at the mercy of a good cameraman and a, and a good director um, because I could only call what I see on the monitor. But, you know, I feel like, um, first of all, all the games, uh, the round-robin games would be uh, obviously against top teams in the West, and I know them very well. And then once you get into a playoff series – And the Blues, of course, would have a bye into the first round. You know, those are the easiest games to call for a broadcaster because you're playing the same team, obviously – Every game for a best of seven series, so it's really relatively easy to identify the other team because um, after a period or so, you you pretty well know them. And and of course, that would be the same team for a best of seven series, so that that would obviously make it a lot easier. You know, if I was doing a game in the middle of the season off a monitor um, against a team that I don't see a lot and not a high profile team, like you know, say the. The, the, the uh, Florida Panthers, for instance, it would be a lot more challenging than doing a playoff series against a team that you know
1: very well. At this point, uh, does any of that even matter as long as you get hockey back?
3: Uh, no, it doesn't matter at all. Um, you know, I, I want, you know, from a selfish standpoint, I, I want to work and, and do the games. But more than that, uh, for the game itself, I think it's important that we finish the season and have a conclusion to this. 19 nineteen twenty season. The Blues obviously um, you know, had a very good season in first place in the West, and I think the Blues have a very good chance to defend their Cup and perhaps win another Stanley Cup. So, you know, big picture, I think it's important that we do finish the season and have a Stanley Cup champion.
1: And the, the Stanley Cup is, is the reason I wanted to have you on this weekend, John, because here we sit. It's been one whole year, and the Blues, I, I guess, they're, the Blues are still the defending Cup champions. Nobody's been able to take that away from them as you look back on the past year, and I mean, really, we can even take it back as you look the past sixteen, seventeen months and the run that they went on. As you, I mean, you've had a lot of time on your hands these past few months. Is this, is that a memory? Is that a thought that still comes to mind a lot for you, having that, knowing what last May and June was like?
3: It's a, it's still amazing, and sometimes you sort of, uh, you know, your daydream or you, you see a, a hat of someone that says Stanley Cup champions, and you're saying, man, they won the cup last year. Um, it, you know, I've watched a lot of the games from the playoff run, every series, obviously a lot of the final um, to – to go through and go back and, and, and remember the moments and the big goals and the things like that. And the emotion, um, obviously, uh, tomorrow is the anniversary June 12th of game seven in Boston. So that's certainly fresh on my mind right now. And I've watched game seven a bunch of times. So yeah, it, 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 it seems, um, almost unrealistic at times, but it's, it was real. And, um, it was obviously one of the greatest moments of my life.
1: Take us back to that game seven as a as a broadcaster, the amount of games that you have done for the Blues over the years, knowing you were getting to do the, the second period of that on the on the radio side. What was what was that day like? What was that prep like for you, knowing that this is this is it? This is the last game I am doing this year. And. It's going one way or the other, and just having that 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 kind of process to go through all day long. <laughs>
3: Well, as far as the prep, there was really not very little prep. I mean, I'm doing the second period and, you know, once you get to a game seven, you obviously know the players, you know the storyline, it's pretty obvious. So there was very little prep, but I think it was advantageous for the Blues to have a couple of days off after game six. It was such a uh, a letdown to lose game six at home when you had the anticipation of winning your first cup. You had 30,000 people or so outside on Market Street and you're ready to party and then you, you, you lose the way they lost. It was a big letdown. So they had a couple of days to recover. Uh, the next day they flew to Boston for game seven. And, and I remember being on the plane that the players were just sort of matter of fact. I mean, they had won so many road games uh, during the regular season and had been superb on the road in the playoffs. So it was business as usual. And, and they had a practice uh, the day before game seven. At TD Garden and the game of uh, the day of game seven was normal. But I, I do remember, you know, going to the morning skate that day and then, you know, coming home after the skate and having lunch and and sitting around the hotel room and thinking like, you know, I've been a Blues fan since the second year. I'm 59 years old. And, you know, I'm thinking like tonight is the night that Will be the greatest night in Blues history, or God forbid, if they lose, it will be the most disappointing loss in Blues history. So when when you when you you know lay it out like that, there obviously a lot can happen, and you know I was I guess prepared for both, but I was confident they could win, and you know as the game went along, obviously they had that two nothing lead after the first period, um, but when you look at it big picture, it's either going to be one of the greatest night of your life or the most disappointing. So um, I guess you have to be ready for both. And, and thankfully it turned out obviously the, in the positive.
1: It's interesting. You, you say most disappointing when you look back at some of the really disappointing times in, in blues history that, making it all the way to game seven, because I felt like there was a point in the postseason last year where you looked at it and you said, man, this was one heck of a run. And man, you know, if they, Hey, if they lose tonight, I'll, I'll still be happy with their season. And then you get to game seven. And does the, does the emotion of that change then when, when you're talking game seven, winner, go home, winner takes all.
3: Well, quite honestly, I felt after they beat Dallas in the second round in that you know epic double overtime game, the goal by Maroon, I thought they would win. I really did. I, th- I thought they would beat San Jose, and they did. And-, and I was confident going into the Boston series. But I don't think, quite honestly, if the Blues would have lost the final series that it would have been well it was a good run and everything is 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 fine they have a good young team maybe they'll win next year i think it would have been a major major letdown to go that far and to win some of the series the way they won. You know, they were down 2 nothing in Game 5 in Winnipeg and won that game on the late goal from Schwartz. And then, obviously, the the second round against Dallas. So I don't think that you could have justified losing the final series and said, everything's okay, it's not a big deal. I think it would have been a major letdown.
1: You, you did mention that it was 2 nothing when you took over in the second period. Is it just, uh, I mean, are you... Are you just ready for those twenty minutes to get over, or are you just enjoying it? Are you taking it all in? How how are you feeling at that point, knowing that it's a two goal lead, but it's forty minutes away? Is all they all they needed to do to kind of stay uh, to to keep that lead and win the cup? <laughs>
3: Well, when I'm announcing a game, um, I'm, I'm not nervous. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, when I was watching uh, Game 7 against Dallas, and, and of course, we could only do the first round, so I'm watching and, 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 you know, just like a fan, and of course, we do do post-game shows, but during the game, um, I'm very nervous when I'm watching. But when I'm announcing like I was in that second period of Game 7, you know, I'm not nervous. Uh, I'm calling the game. I have a job to do, uh, but I felt that, it was anyone's game until Shen scored. Um, you know, a two nothing lead in hockey is, is certainly not. It, you can overcome that w- without much difficulty in today's game. Um, I mean, teams are coming back from three and four goals down. So when it was two nothing, I, I still felt it was it was uh, a challenge to win the game. And obviously, the Blues were in good shape. But I felt that in the last two periods, the Blues played really well. And, you know, they were at least as good as Boston in those last two periods, if not the better team. And, of course, they scored, you know, two goals in the third to go up 4 nothing, and Boston scored a late goal. But the moment that Shen scored to make it 3 nothing, at that point I had moved down to the other side of the press box, and I was sitting with my partner Darren Pang and Bernie Federko and-, and some of the Blues players that weren't dressed that night. And the second Chen scored with about nine minutes left to make it three nothing. I felt it was over. As a matter of fact, the, the Blues players, the extra players that were sitting up there, including the likes of Robbie Fabry and Chris Butler, all made their way down to the locker room to get dressed. To go onto the ice for the celebration so but until that goal was scored um, I, I still think it was anyone's game as a matter of fact about two minutes before Shen scored uh, Joachim Nordstrom of Boston had that wide open chance in front and Biddington made a brilliant pad save to keep it two nothing if Nordstrom scores there and makes it 2-1 then it's game on and, and who knows what would have happened
1: Outside of the the clock ticking down those final seconds in Boston in Game Seven, is there is there a moment, is there a play from all of the playoff games from last year that still just sticks in your mind as as that top moment?
3: I would say two two goals were. Um, and I've mentioned them already the, the Schwartz goal yeah. in game five against Winnipeg with 15 seconds left. It, it was a shocking end to that game. I, although the game of course didn't end at that second. Um, but you just knew when he scored, it was basically over because as, as I said, the blues were down two nothing and you know, a, a fifth game in a series that's tied two two. I don't have the exact percentage in front of me, but um, roughly 85% of the time, the winner of Game 5 will win that series. So we, we felt after short scored and they won the game, they were in great shape. So that goal, and quite obviously the goal by Maroon in double overtime, Because Dallas, although they were dominated in the last two periods of Game 7, they had only four total shots in the second and third periods. They got better as the overtime went on. Um, Late in the first overtime, they had a lot of chances. And in the second overtime, they had quite a few chances. Of course, just before Pat scored, Jamie Benn had that wraparound um, that Bennington barely got over and got his pad down and made the save on the goal line. So those were obviously the big goals Um, and, and, you know, Petrangelo gets the game-winner in Game 7 late in the first period with about eight seconds left to make it 2-0. I mean, you could argue that was the biggest goal in Blues history because it turned out to be the game-winning goal. And it gave the Blues a cushion, and they had a lead, you know, after the first period. And they had no business being ahead in that game. I mean, Bennington was so amazing in the first period. Um, Quite honestly, Boston should have had at least three or four goals. But the Blues skated off with a 2-0 lead, and that goal, of course, turned out to be the game-winner.
1: So let's talk about what's going to be happening here. And I I guess we can maybe predict either LA or Vegas as the hub city for the, uh, for the blues. I know Thursday morning, they said July 10th was when camps and everything can restart. When you look at, any sport, really, and you look at how hard it is to repeat going back to back. One of the reasons for that is because they were playing so late into the season before, and they get tired. Now every team has had three months off. By then, by the time they start playing, four months off is. I mean, is it really anybody's game right now? Can we look at the Blues and say, well, they're you know they're the best team. They have the best shots, and is I mean, we don't know how what kind of. I guess health players are going to be coming in, what kind of shape they're going to be coming in. What are you expecting when these camps start back in a month?
3: Well, we're clearly in uncharted territory. Um, I expect the players to be in pretty good shape. And if, if they do resume camp on July 10th, which, as you said, the NHL announced uh, today, along with the Players Association, that is the expected opening of camp. And then hopefully they start around August 1st. Uh, you know, it's a level playing field. And, and in the history of the NHL, Quite honestly, you've never had a level playing field going into the Stanley Cup playoffs because you've never had this type of pause. But I think for sure it benefits the Blues and the Boston Bruins because they played the most hockey of any team last year. I mean, the Blues played 26 playoff games before they won last June 12th to win the Cup. So, you you know, they go in as a rested team like everybody else. And that would not have been the case had the playoffs opened in in early April like they were supposed to. That's why it's so hard to to go back to back and to win multiple championships because of the grind. Um, At the same time, every team will get all of their injured players back. And in particular for the Blues, obviously Tarasenko had not played since late October. But a team like Colorado, a team that I think... Um, has as good a chance as anybody to come out of the West and perhaps win the Cup. They had a lot of injuries. They had more injuries than the Blues. Nazem Kadri was hurt. I believe Landis Gog, um Even McKinnon got hurt in their last game and was expected to miss some time. So there were teams that were more banged up than the Blues. But the bottom line is, Every team um, is going to come back in fully rested and, for the most part, fully healthy. I, I know there are some players that um, have long-term injuries, but the Blues are going to be fully healthy. And it's going to be an amazing playoff, I think, especially in that play-in round, that best-of-five that the Blues won't be involved in, of course. Um, you know, best-of-five series are going to be a lot of fun, so I just can't wait for that.
1: I was talking with Greg Wyshynski a few weeks ago, and we we were discussing one of the things that could be a lot of fun in those games is players from other teams that would be sitting in the crowd. If they're all playing at one rink, it would be like a youth hockey tournament where you have the other teams just kind of sitting there and watching it. And some of the chirping and trash talking that you can get from some of the other teams could be a lot of fun if you can get that mic'd up.
3: Yeah. You know, I don't know if that's the, that's going to be the case. If the, if the teams would elect to, to go to the rink and and watch a game, my sense is they wouldn't, Um, you know, these guys get enough hockey and, you know, if you have a game at eight at night, you might have a morning skate at a practice rink and, and you you come back and have your pregame meal and then your rest. So I don't think the players are going to be hanging around the rink watching other games like you might in a a youth hockey tournament. So, um, you know, who knows? I don't really know. Maybe if you have a game at four o'clock and there's a game after that, maybe some of the players would hang around. Um, But I don't know. I really don't know because obviously we've never done this.
1: Well, John, I appreciate the time. Looking back one year ago to uh, June 12th of 2019, the uh, the greatest day ever to be a fan of the St. Louis Blues, and we uh, we appreciate you looking back at it with us. My
3: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to be joined by Voice of the Blues, John Kelly here on Weekend, Joe, driven by Munganass St. Louis hacker also, hey, driven by Munganass Alton Toyota. Do you know it's hybrid month at Munganass Alton Toyota? They have the 2020 Toyota RAV4 hybrids, the Camry hybrids, the Avalon hybrids, and they have some great deals and fantastic financing available through the month of June. You get 0% financing for 60 months on all three of those cars I mentioned, and if you've been thinking Thinking about a hybrid? Well, now's the perfect time to do it. Find them online at altontoyota.com or call their sales department, 618-208-2400 and make your appointment today at Munganass Alton Toyota over on the Illinois side of the river. Come back with more right here on ClaibesOnline.com. Earl Austin Jr., the awesome one, he's up next. Weekend Joe, driven by Munganess St. Louis Acura here on clavesonline.com now the exclusive home of weekend joe hey st louis acura has received the precision team award 28 times more than any other acura dealership in the united states they have been serving the st louis area since 1986 located at 13720 manchester road in st louis they are your premier realtor of new and used acura vehicles In the nation, that is S St. Louis Acura, the title sponsor here of Weekend Joe, now on clavesonline.com. And welcome back into Weekend Joe here on ClaibesOnline.com. We are driven by Munginaz St. Louis Acura, and we head back out to the guest line again, and we welcome in the awesome one. You hear him on Slew Billiken Games. He is Earl Austin Jr. Earl, what's going on? How are you? I'm fine, Joe. How are you doing today? I am. I'm doing good. So I have to say before we before we get started on everything, I feel like Klaibs sets me up when he knows I'm interviewing friends of his. Because I when I tell him, like, hey, I got Earl coming on, he'll say, oh, you know, you got to ask him about this. You got to ask him about that. And I never know if it's going to lead to a good story. Or if it's something that he's just he wants to pick on the guest that we're gonna have, and he knows that I'm the perfect person to do it. So every I don't trust,
4: I don't trust claims at all. Just
1: okay, good. I figured that was gonna be the case with that because one of the things I mean that he wanted me to talk about and he told this was after I had rammer on a few weeks ago he said that I really needed to talk to you guys about the pickup games the media pickup games that you guys played back in the day and he said you really need to bring that up to Earl because he's got some stories and I, I don't know if I'm supposed to bring that up or not
4: we used to have some fun back in the day. <clears throat> I forget, like during lunch uh, in West Pine Gym, we used to, you know, I'd say the media would uh, would come and we play some ball. Uh, and I, I wasn't far far removed from my college playing days at the time, so. I was still rather young. I I couldn't do it today. I'm so out of shape, and I haven't picked up a ball in years. But, yeah, Clay's always has this. He puts out this nasty rumor about me that uh, I never passed the ball. He's been putting that out there for, for unfounded He's been doing that for decades now, this uh, old (laughs) fishtail.
1: Which is exactly what he told me to bring up. (laughs) 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 Because when I told him I had you on, we talked, uh, you know, unfortunately you lost your uncle last week and uh, we we send our condolences to you and your family, but he he didn't know how somebody that was related to Wes Unsel just never wanted to pass the ball. So... (laughs)
4: Yeah, I did, when, when I did a radio, show, I did this show uh, oh, about a couple of years ago. I, I kind of we started talking about that subject, and I kind of I went back to this uh, the a quote from an old Brazilian star named Oscar Schmidt, who was one of the best international basketball stars, and he was known for scoring. He wasn't known for passing. And his great quote was: uh, "You know, the people would complain to him about him shooting too much. He would get you forty fifty a night." And I, I sometimes I quote Oscar. He Oscar would say. If you don't want me to shoot, don't pass me the ball. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that we were able to uh, to clear that rumor up because uh, the other one uh, had, had to do with your uncle because Claves told me that he always put your uncle in the top 10 of all-time centers, but he told me that you you didn't. He said that you had Patrick Ewing above, uh, above him.
4: <laughs> no, I had Uncle Wes in the top 10, but I always had Patrick Ewing. We've been arguing about Patrick Ewing. I don't know why he hates on Patrick Ewing. I don't know. <laughs> He lost, lost money on that Georgetown-Villanova game. And he's a Bulls fan. So, I mean, and the Knicks were one of their biggest competitors back in the day. And Ewing was great. You know, there's no doubt about it. But uh, yeah, that that's been a running, I guess, since the, God, since the '80s, late '80s. We've been we've been arguing about or '90s. We've been arguing about Patrick Williams. I have and, more respect for Patrick than he does. Obviously,
1: <laughs> when you think of, I mean, when when you look at a stat like that, when you look at top ten centers, <laughs> uh, that really is a, a lost position in today's NBA game. I, I mean, when you try to think of who the great centers are, and when you think center, I mean, you think seven foot or above. For some reason, I mean, they're, they're are just not around and you all you are getting more seven footers that like to shoot the ball too I I guess Joel Embiid is probably the best center in the game right now if depending on where you put someone like uh, Anthony Davis or where you put him position wise
4: right yeah there's really no real true centers there's very few like I say Embiid uh Nikoli Jokic of Denver uh great European center um did you uh, see him?
1: The other, did you see the pictures of him? By the way, it's, when,
4: it's ridiculous. He looks like he's about two hundred pounds.
1: <laughs> <For> he, <real. laughs> he he's lost. It looks like about forty pounds since quarantine. Yeah,
4: uh, unbelievable. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, he's unrecognizable. But yeah, you're right. He's he. Those two are the like the great more classic centers. Even Daniel Aiden, uh, He's more of a who was drafted just last year. It was more of a back to the basket center. But as you say, the game has changed so much. It's geared toward three-point shooting, it's geared toward perimeter play, positionless basketball, and you see guys, even like Carl Anthony Towns, who's a behemoth at seven one, about 250, 260, but he's more of a, he likes, he could score in the post, but he likes to take his game out to the three-point shot, three-point line. You know, Anthony Davis was always a, he was a six three guard who grew into a 6'11 center, so he's always been a big, giant guard. Uh, Greek Freak Giannis uh, is, a, is, a, is basically a point center, they put the ball in his hands, he dribbles and dunks, you know. And uh, I think, like I said, and then you see even got some of the guys that are a little older, like Brooke Lopez and Mark uh, Gasol, in their later career, they've stretched their game out and become stretch fives, shooting three point shots. And, uh, you know, it's it's the way, you know, and i, 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 I one more name. Uh, the kid in Dallas played with the Knicks, uh, Unicorn. Yeah, he was, he's basically a 7'4. Oh, Porzingas, uh, yeah. Porzingas, wing player. And, it, you know, in one thing, it's fun to see. The bigs uh, develop and become uh, those type of players, those hybrid type of players. But in a way, it's also, in, to me, as somebody who grew up watching those great centers, it's sad to see nobody develop. Because like I say, the sky hook is the most um, most unstoppable shot ever by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the dream shake by Akeem Wan, Kevin McHale's up and under moves in the post, Tim Duncan. Fifteen feet off the glass, Elvin Hayes the turnaround jump shot, Carl Malone uh, burning the court. You know those, these are you know those 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 men and obviously Russell Chamberlain, and the, and the list goes on and on uh, of, of of great centers. In fact you don't you don't see those type of centers that can dominate the post. There's still money in the low post. It's just <laughs> that game has just been uh, you know almost legislated out of the out of that those guys that game back to the basket play has just been pretty much legislated out of the league.
1: Is that something that starts at the college level with with things being so condensed inside? And when you lose that mid range jumper, then you start to lose even more game inside. What's what's the reason why you're you're not seeing that and seeing? You know, you mentioned guys like a Brook Lopez who now loves to shoot three pointers. I mean, he shouldn't be, but he but he is now, and well, I, you, you see it you see it more and more.
4: Well, like I say analytics and uh, the the, the the science mathematicians have taken over the league, primarily in the NBA, you could still in college basketball, you could you know, there's still a mix of guys who like to shoot the three and perimeter game, but you, 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 you low post guys in high school and college, you can still dominate and win basketball games. North Carolina did a couple of years ago and won a national championship. And, but I think you see the, the league has gone that way. And, uh, and the guys that have gone analytics, they are telling you that's, the only good shots are three-point shots, layups, and free throws, which, you know, I, I disagree with totally. I think Kawhi Leonard, I say guy, guys like Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Durant didn't get that memo. You know, those are the three, three, to three the last three finals MVPs. Not only are they good three-point shooters uh, and can get to the rack and dunk, but they're great mid-range shooters. Those guys didn't get the memo. Kyrie Irving, a world champion, didn't get the memo that the mid shot is a bad shot. You know, uh, Demar Derozan's made a career, made about 150 million dollars or whatever. He's a mid-range shooter. Uh, CJ McCollum, one of the great scoring guards. So I think I, I you know, it's fine that if you want to uh, shoot the three, get to the rim, and everything, like Harden is kind of the poster boy for that. But to tell people that this shot is a bad shot mathematically because it's two three and all that stuff, I mean that's kind of putting limits on on you. That's like forty years ago telling a six nine guy like Magic Johnson. You imagine somebody told Magic, Magic, you're six nine. Don't dribble. Don't pass. Go inside in the paint. You know that means that means you're just putting limits on an, an offensive player. I see. You know, I see where the game is going, but I think you're putting limits. Not when you see Durant and Kawhi Leonard. Is this good enough for those guys? I, I think it's good enough for other kids if they want to develop a mid-range jump shot without a coach in their ear. tongues shoot that shot! That's shot. You know, that, for me, that's cool. shoot all the threes you want, but don't don't try to brown beat a kid. Youngsters, he wants to if he wants to expand and get buckets from everywhere, buckets of buckets, you know. And I think the great ones can do it all from everywhere. And I think that's that's what I like to see.
1: What What has it been like as the game has changed from a announcer's standpoint? With you and Rammer calling the game, that is now at the college level, it's all about that passing the ball around till you get that open three and and taking it there. What What kind of has watched
4: Billiken basketball the last couple of years? <laughs> We don't prescribe to that. <laughs> I mean, I'm
1: talking just every – I mean, where you're going through the Atlantic 10 and every other – I mean, you're just going through and you're calling all these games and you're seeing it change that way.
4: Yeah, I've done un- – in college basketball, you can – everybody everything's still. Like, the Billikins you've seen the last couple of years, we've pretty much been the bullies on the block. I mean, until Gibson Jimerson showed up, Javon Best, we were one of the bottom – we were one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the country, but we were still able to win championships and go to the NCAA tournament because we played rock-solid defense. We attacked the rim on the dribble, and we rebounded as well as anybody else. We weren't a pre three-point shooting team. Now, it's changing a little bit with the addition of Gibson Jimerson coming on board. Uh, we've had some guys that improved three-point shooting, Javante Perkins, but as a team, you know, three-point is three, like 25 years ago. That's what I said. Spoonball, that's all we did was shoot a bunch of threes. I went H. Waldman, Scott Heidenmark, Mark, Irwin Claggett. We were about – our tallest kid was 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, Jeff Harris in the paint. So we spread the court out, averaged 85 points a game, and, and shot it from three-point range. And that was 25 years ago. So I think it all depends on the type of personnel you have. If you have, if you have bigs like Bill Self's teams in Kansas, he likes that, that high-low where he plays two bigs, get the ball inside. Jay Wright did a nice job at Villanova. He'd bring a lot of guards on the court, spread that court, shoot a bunch of threes. Uh, Roy Williams always played big at North Carolina. You know, he always had two big guys inside, like Justin Jackson on their championship team. He's a six nine kid. Normally, in today's game, that kid's playing the four spot, but. He- play him at three play two bigs inside and play more of a traditional lineup and win a national championship so i think at the high school and college level you still see you see the you, you see guys that subscribe to analytics and you still see guys that subscribe to old school you still see some guys that subscribe to uh just getting the ball inside or just playing tight tough defense so uh a lot of you can still a lot of ways to skin the cat but in the The pro game, it's pretty much a lot, you know, uh, pace and space, a lot of shoot, a lot of threes, more or less. I think more so than anything.
1: You mentioned some of the uh, some of the great names from the past. We just saw a, another great Billikin hang it up this week. A very long professional career wasn't in the NBA, but Kevin Lish uh, finally has uh, has called it a, <coughs> a career. I outside of the games that he played at Slew. So I'm also I'm 35 years old. I, I went and I played at Alton High. I never got to play with uh, with Kevin Lish back in high school or against him back in high school. And that's uh, looking back at the career that he had. I, I kind of uh, wish that I would have crossed paths with him at some point. What do you remember about his uh, his time at uh, at SLU?
4: Phenomenal. I even go back to Althoff. I, I saw so many Kevin Blish games at Althoff. I, I went – the first time I saw him was at the O'Fallon Tournament, and he was just a sophomore. It was one of the first games. I didn't get a chance to see him as a freshman, and he went head-to-head against – O'Fallon had this kid named Xavier Price. Xavier Price, Price really, yep. Really good player. Dynamic athlete, and Kevin went head to head, and Kevin, I, I was like, offensively, defensively, scoring, gave you buckets, and I was just like, wow, this kid is tough. I, this, this kid is tough, and I like fell in love with him I, right then. Yeah, this kid's got to be a Pelican. We got to get this kid, a-. and I saw so I watched. I watched so many all. I did back then. The Metro East was just stacked with with talented teams, East St. Louis, Altov, Alton. Uh, and not Belleville, the years I was there. Uh, Alton,
1: Alton before. Al- Alton Belleville. before,
4: not the years I was there. No, that was – You're talking about the Stalker <laughs> years when he went to the league. Yes. Yeah. You're right after you. Yeah, that, yeah. but, but yeah, that, that's when they went to the – the Belleville West, uh, O'Fallon. I mean, it was some really, really good teams. And, and Centralia, Carbondale, coming from Southern Illinois. So I used to go to all these games. And Kevin was just a phenomenal talent. And then, obviously, when he got the slew, he and Tommy together were the six one eight backcourt. We called them. And Kevin was one of the best billigans of all time. The uh, thing is he can't bring it, never took a playoff offensively, defensively, had a great touch from three. Uh you know, R- Rammer started calling him the honey badger because of his tenaciousness. And I think a couple things I remember mostly. One was the Xavier game. Xavier was top ten in the country when they came to the Keel Center or whatever it was called at the time. We were down like eight or nine with about a minute and a half. Kevin scored 12 points in the last minute and a half and got us to overtime, shooting threes, getting to the basket. It was just a 12-point run at about a minute, 40 seconds. And then the Richmond game, I think, his sophomore, junior senior year, he had 31, hit a big three at the buzzer to put it in the overtime. And uh yeah, and then, and then the fact that he went down and had a great career in Australia, won a championship, was an MVP, and then Made the Olympic, you know, married a girl from Australia, got to citizenship, made the Olympic team, and was a big player on a great team. And you're talking about team with pros like Patty Mills, world champion, Jimmy Inglis of the Jazz, Andrew Bogut, a world champion. Uh, it was, uh, uh, a had Vadova, a world champion. Guys are still playing in the league. Uh, and he was right there. He was one of the top, he was in the five, top six, seven-man rotation. And I think that was a tremendous feather uh, in his cap to be a, Playing on the Olympic team with those uh, tremendous NBA pros.
1: We uh, you mentioned when you mentioned Lish and uh, Tommy that being Tommy Liddell <sighs> from East St. Louis that you're uh, you're talking about a quick story about him. So he was a year behind me. Uh, Liddell was in school, so that would his freshman year would have been the year after Darius Miles left East St. Louis. Right. So I'm playing in a sophomore game at Alton High, and there's this tall, lanky kid on East St. Louis coming out to the court, and we hear stories that, oh, this is the next Darius Miles, this and that, but he's a freshman playing sophomore, so we're not thinking anything of it. He drives down the lane in the uh, early parts of the game. I stand in there to take a charge, and he jumps over me and throws the ball off the back of the iron. So he didn't dunk on me because he missed the dunk, but he just jumped right over me, and we're kind of looking up and going, Okay, this is a freshman doing this next week. he's starting for East St. Louis on their varsity team so you kind of uh, you kind of knew then that there was something special out of that kid too.
4: Yeah, just a silky, smooth performer just didn't look like he was going hard at any time, but he would be oh. blowing by you and it still looked like he was going in slow motion he was left-handed you 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 literally, cut off his left hand he still gets to the basket anyway he's a great passer his feel for the game was good he was unselfish and uh him and Kevin just made a great backcourt over the over their four years together just fun to watch and like you said when Darius left obviously Darius was uh you know uh godlike on the basketball court when he left <laughs> St. Louis. he was a rock star so people are wondering, is there a life after Darius Miles and after, you know, it was a little transition for a year in between and then uh, Tommy shows up and then it was uh, uh, Eastside. It was rocking again at Eastside with Tommy. He grew to about, he was about 6'1, when he, 6'1", 6'2", when he joined, but then he ended up being about 6'5", and just a very smooth, uh, smooth operator with that ball.
1: Yeah, that was uh, and still today. I mean, it's it's a shame that the uh, that the high school season got cut short the way it did. The same with the uh, the college season for you. And you know, you're, you're talking back then of SLU doing such a good job of recruiting local and keeping those local kids from both sides of the river there at uh, at Shafitz. And we uh, we we just saw last week uh, that two guys are going to return to that SLU team next year. French and Goodwin are both uh, both announced that they're not. going to go to the draft that they're going to be coming back that has to have you really excited for the uh, 2020-2021 Billiken team
4: it really is especially the way we finished the year last year we won 23 games and then we won our last five or six and we were really uh heading into the Atlantic 10 tournament on a very high emotional high they were really playing good basketball we won those games by all of them by double digits and so losing that tournament, you know, we really thought we we had a chance. Even with Dayton playing as good as they were, we thought we had a chance to repeat. And they really wanted to defend that championship. So having everybody back in the fold is going to be very exciting, especially uh, adding uh, Gibson and uh, Fred Fats Jr. is going to be unbelievable. Gibson, we lost as our best shooter uh you know 44 percent then Fred our toughest guy defender uh but get Jordan back you get Haas back you get uh Javante Perkins was our leading scorer in league play Uri Collins our quarterback out point guard T.J. Hargrove a uh, big Jimmy Bell uh so many pieces in place uh, it's going to be very exciting. You just have, if you can get the team chemistry, because we're going to have the depth and talent to really make some noise. Challenge schedule is going to be great. So really looking forward to the season.
1: And that's something that team chemistry, it seems like that's something Travis Ford has been able to come in and, and do a good job of, of bringing the, the kids together. The, uh, the few years that he's been here at, uh, at SLU and it, that run last year was, was just phenomenal. And it seems like this is a uh, program that, that really could do some damage and that. Atlantic Ten and then make a, a nice run in the in the postseason and then be a thorn in a few teams side.
4: Yeah, Travis has done a tremendous job. His first couple of years we've had, you know, adversity where we've lost a lot of kids before the season even started. And he was able to mold things into a very competitive unit. And then uh, last season we had injuries and kids leaving the program and then by the end of the season molded them into a team that won a championship. And then we lose five good seniors. And uh, all of them were fifth year, four and fifth year guys. So we basically had Jordan Hassan and basically everybody knew. And it took time. Then you lose two key guys to injuries and illness. And then by the end of the season, we're playing at our best level going into the A-10 tournament. So Travis has proven to be a guy who can kind of on the fly, you know, think fast on his feet and kind uh, kind of recalibrate the team. Uh, this year we have a team that everybody's coming back, it's loaded, and their going, expectations are going to be high. So I know Reed's looking forward to that. But And then the fact is he's recruited as well. You lose an excellent group with Javon and company, but you still have a good group in place to lead the way. And I think that's and he's recruited local, like you said, Jordan Goodwin, Uri Collins, TJ Hargrove, Javante Perkins, all local kids who were a huge part of last year's success. And then moving forward, and I think that's really helped fill the Shaffer's arena. We've seen the crowds come back and good high-level local recruits coming to watch games again. And I think it's the excitement level of a St. Shoe basketball is back to where it was, where majeris really had things going.
1: Earl, before we let you go, uh, I I was I was hoping to get you on last week, but I I think the message still resonates this week. Everything that we saw going on around the country last uh, last week, uh, and even here locally with the protests and some of those turning into riots, you you have a voice here in the uh, in the community, and you are you go around, you travel around to all of these different high schools and talk to all of these kids um, that are that are playing basketball and and they know you and they respect you and they see you there and I see you with the polo, the Earl Time Update polo. They know when you're showing up there with that that it's a, that it's a big game and Earl's there to cover it. So as as somebody who does have a, a voice in the community, what what kind of message would you give to these young kids that might not know or might not fully understand or still learning as to what's going on as far as the, the protests are going, Black Lives Matter, the, the issues that are, that are in front of them for, for years to come?
4: I think what we've seen and what we've seen black people have been saying uh, for 400 years, for centuries, and then those who've lived through the Civil Rights Movement and everything. What we've seen and what we've seen with the with the protests, especially, is that uh, racism has been put on blast. I mean, I think it's in the crosshairs of everybody now, uh, to most everybody. And I think The actions, what we saw in Minneapolis that day with George Floyd's killing, which I call an atrocity, I think the fact that everybody is in the house from coronavirus had a chance to watch that every 10 excruciating, heartbreaking minutes. And the way it happened, I think it really caught the attention of of everybody. And I think it just devastated the sensibilities of, of folks to the point where it was, you had kids, and I, that's, I was proud of it. It was so many young people, not only watching them out in the street walking around, protesting and making their voices heard in big cities, but in small towns, in rural towns. And I've been to almost all the rural towns in Missouri and Illinois going to games, and a lot of them don't have little or no black population. But you see hundreds of people in those towns where you think they wouldn't have any skin in this game. But they're out there, and uh, they're letting folks know that this stuff wasn't right. This stuff won't fly anymore, and uh, I think that is good to see. That is good to see people out there just doing it peacefully, uh, riding and hurting, people, killing people, not care. That that wasn't good to see. Obviously, Mr. Dorn was a good man. We lost a good man last week, and and I think. But I think uh, just to see that type of uh, energy put towards, you know, making a positive change and stamping out what's been our, you know, you know, coronavirus is the biggest pandemic going right now, but racism is a pandemic that's been ailing us forever. And to see so many more people and so many young people lending their voice to uh trying to change things. That was, uh, that was heartening. That that was heartening and very extraordinary to see in all corners of the country and obviously all over the world. So, uh, That's that 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 will stick with me, no question.
1: Earl, without sports these past few weeks, I know that you've been uh, very active on social media. You've been posting every Friday, asking (coughs) for stories of uh, of prep events, whether it was great athletes or great (coughs) or just great memories in in high school sports in the uh, St. Louis area. Is there one player or memory that has been tweeted to you that that? Re, that, that kind of brought back a, a memory for you that, uh, that really stands out?
4: <laughs> oh, my God. There have been so many. Uh, God. Uh, <clears throat> as a McClure North graduate, you know, obviously watching them win a state championship, for the first time, boys' championship. Well, my sister always reminds me, the Hertz girls' team was the first North team, but watching them win a state championship for the first time was always special because I flew back from the Atlantic 10, caught a plane, and was able to uh, uh, get back and w- watch that game in person. But I, I don't know if, if one state, I mean, there, there was just so many memories. You put out a different question like this week who's the best dunker? Uh, who was the best? Uh, two sport multi-sport athletes the best rivalry and you get you get answers from all over the country people chiming in on uh, their high school memories and I think that's the that that's the best part for me just to see people go back to their high school days and they just kind of mem- uh, uh, reminisce about uh, what 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 it meant to them as well.
1: All right so best dunker in St. Louis who uh, of all time who was it?
4: The well, best I've seen, I think, uh, Antonio Windmill Rivers from Afton High School, 1994. He, his nickname is Windmill. So that, <laughs> that, lets, you, that, that lets you know. Uh, George Clay of Ashine not as known to many people. He was a ferocious dunker about six three, six four. Jesse Hall on the Illinois side. There, there's so many good ones uh, as well. But those are a couple that really
1: really stand out to me. I, uh, I would have to say the best one I've seen in person uh, when Kaleem Grimes came to uh, Alton, it was my junior year. I think it would have been his senior year. So around 2002, I think he dunked seven times in the first quarter. And, yeah, Dalen uh, was a big power
4: dunker. Yeah, big, big fella. <laughs> Absolutely,
1: <laughs> wasn't a uh, wasn't a good game for the uh, for the Redbirds that
4: day. <laughs> well, Earl... who the, was who's the best Redbird dunker? I'm trying to remember. Oh God,
1: like, uh, you're. <sighs> I mean. I'm trying to. I mean, it probably would have been somebody more recently. Then I would, I would think. I mean, there some of the teams that they've had recently, they had kids that were throwing it down a lot more than back in back in the day when I was when I was. Yeah, Don,
4: yeah, that kid Donovan Clay playing for yeah uh, Valparaiso is a heck of a ball player. He, he he's doing your high school proud, man. He's a good ball yeah. player.
1: Yeah, they, they had a few. They've had a few good, uh, few good years here recently, and I would uh, hopefully uh, you see one of those guys uh, keep it uh, keep it going and keep a uh, maybe make it to the league one of these uh, days. Absolutely, but I really appreciate the uh, the time here. Glad we could make it work, and again, uh, condolences out to you and your family on the uh, the loss of your uncle last week as
4: well. Joe, my pleasure, and thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun today.
1: Any, uh, any words for Klaibs at the end of this That uh, since he, he set me up at the beginning?
4: Babes, well, if we ever get on the basketball court again, if, if I get the ball, Klaibs, just go try to rebound. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's the awesome one, Earl Austin Jr. joining us here on Weekend Joe, driven by Munganaz St. Louis Acura here on com. Also, hey, we're sponsored by the Inskip Law Firm. Corey Inskip at the Inskip Law Firm. Don't hesitate to call him for any of your estate planning, your will, your trust, your power of attorney needs. Corey Inskip can take care of all of that. Traffic tickets, hey, that, that's going to start happening again. Cops are back out giving tickets again. Uh, So if you get those, Corey and Skip, he's your guy. I-N-S-K-I-P. That's Inskip Law Firm over in St. Louis. They are committed to your satisfaction. Call him, tweet him, email him, Facebook message. him any way that you need to get a hold of Corey and Skip, you can do so, and he will get back with you. Remember, the choice of a lawyer is an important decision. It should not be based solely upon advertising. We come back, and we wrap things up here on Weekend Joe with some questions. Crack Slippers with me and Andy Hanselman right here on KlebsOnline.com. We're driven by Munginat St. Louis Acura. You're listening to Weekend Joe, now on KlabesOnline.com, driven by ass St. Louis Acura, also sponsored by the Collinsville Auto Body. Collinsville Auto Body, 911 North Bluff Road in Collinsville, sponsor of, uh, well, my many shows on many different platforms for about 10 years now. Collinsville Auto Body, they'll work with most insurance providers to get you back on the road fast. That's 911 North Bluff Road in collinsville collinsville autobody and welcome back into weekend joe here on clabsonline.com we're driven by munganass st louis acura and munganass alton toyota as we uh get ready to wrap things up here on the uh on the day as we um you know we we had uh, John Kelly on the show. We had Bob Carpenter on the show. We had uh, Earl Austin Jr. all on the show, covering a wide variety of topics. I, I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to that long gone summer coming out on Sunday night, as we will uh, look at both, you know, the Sammy Sosa and Mark mcguire side of the home run chase. Andy, how old were you in '98? Twenty-one. Twenty-one. So you you probably you got to enjoy it a lot more than I did, I'm sure. I did,
0: and I was actually at 62. Really? Yes, I was. I don't think I've ever. I, 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 you've ever told me that. Yeah, September eighth, nineteen ninety eight, top of yeah. the 14th, mark McGuire, Steve Traxel, Joe. It was. Um, you know, we were. We talked earlier in the show about um, about being at the uh, at Bush Stadium for the Stanley Cup Final uh, and, and watching it there on the big screen. That it, it didn't even compare to the energy that was in Bush Stadium on September eighth, nineteen ninety eight. It was absolutely incredible. I bet
1: it was. The only thing I remember from that is uh, so I would have been in ninety eight I would have been in um, in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And Andy, I remember Miss Lorsbach did not give us math homework for a week because Mark McGuire hit his sixty second home run. Oh wow. yeah, that's that yeah. when I think of that, for
0: some reason, that is one of the memories that sticks with me. I remember that I actually, I, I after McGuire hit the home run, I, I left the game early uh, because I really? I had just started a new job and I was worried about being late for work the next day. <sighs> it was it was, like, it was,
1: well, it, I mean, after the home runs hit, I mean, what there's no real reason to stick around, right?
0: Yeah. I think I left like around the sixth inning or so. Okay. Yeah. what a, Just what an absolutely incredible night. I remember that they, they had rolled up a big banner. Uh, in center field, when they drop that, and they dropped that. As I said, you know McGuire sixty-two. Um, actually, I have a picture of it uh, here on my desk somewhere. Uh, it, it was a, taken with a. It was a panoramic film camera, and it, you can cut, and you can see Traxel throwing. And you can see McGuire just before he hits the ball.
1: Okay, that's that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, post that. Yeah, you have to you have to post that this weekend with the uh, with this show coming out. Okay, I can do that. Yeah. So that was. Um, yeah. That. So. But that'll be Sunday. We will talk about it a lot on Lunch with Klaibs and Joe coming up on Monday. Uh, this uh, of next week. Usually around twelve thirty is when we start that on Facebook and on Twitter. Andy, before we wrap things up here for
0: the uh, for the day, we need to get some crack slippers. Some stories just aren't meant to hit the mainstream news. We picked those stories up here on Weekend Joe. These are The Crack Slippers with Joe Roderick on KlabesOnline.com.
1: Andy, uh, so I, I don't know. I, I'm guessing you probably have never tweeted at Ben Roethlisberger. I know I've never tweeted at Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, but Ben Roethlisberger, I guess, does not personally handle his uh, his Twitter account. And thus, so, he, so he has an issue where he blocks a lot of people and I guess it's not Ben Roethlisberger that blocks the people uh, on this. I, there are, there are hundreds of media members out there who over the years they kind of wear it as a badge of honor that they have been blocked by Ben Roethlisberger for almost no reason at all for some of these people, just that they are football media. But I guess uh, the plan on Tuesday of this past week was that he started to unblock everybody and anybody that he had blocked throughout his entire career on social media. So if you, for some reason or another, have ever been blocked by Ben Roethlisberger, go look. There's a chance that you are now unblocked by him.
0: I'm glad that Ben has that kind of time just to go unblock everybody. And he's going to—he well, has somebody apparently that was handling his social media that was just uh,
1: just throwing a block party.
0: Yeah, but he's going he's gonna, to knowing the the cesspool that Twitter is right now for the most part, he's going to probably regret that move.
1: Or he just will never get on social media, and it's never something that he has to worry about. So it's not he- something that he'll ever have to see. Good. So. Be. Yeah. Uh, Also, too. uh, So Michael Jordan, he's been in the news during this whole quarantine because of the last dance. And, you know, the the topic that was kind of big was about the gambling that he does and the rumors that started up once again. Well, apparently, by the way, so one of the great things I liked about the last dance was seeing the license plates that Jordan had on his car.
0: I enjoyed that part
1: of it, too, Joe. Right. He was not subtle at all about hiding who he was. No. <laughs> so, you know, our, one of our fine sponsors here on the show, Kevin Miller. I Well, I God, I don't want to bring this up because now if he listens, he's going to he's going to be really upset with me for bringing this up because he used to have a boat. And, Andy, that that boat sank. It did sink. And
0: but, he, he you know, sabotaged by Doug Vaughn.
1: Right. Because he <laughs> named the boat Free Dotum. Because when you when you have a boat, you name your boat. Michael Jordan has a boat that he calls Catch 23. Okay? Get it? Yep. Cuz he uses it to catch fish. Well, this past week was the 62nd annual Big Rock Blue Marlin Tournament in Morehead City, North Carolina. Okay? There was prize money on the line of 3.4 million dollars. Because there was money on the line, Michael Jordan had to enter the contest. Okay. He's actually entered it before. Uh, He's participated in huge fishing competitions before, including the White Marlin Open in 2019. Andy, he did not win the tournament. He finished fifth, though, in the tournament. Andy, he caught a blue marlin that weighed 442 pounds.
0: My goodness. Do you catch those with a worm? <laughs> I, I mean, you have to, like, throw in, like, a bigger, like, a big-ass fish, right? I think a really big fish to catch one of those, yes.
1: I would love to know, like, because we saw how Jordan hyped himself up for big games to win. Like, if he kind of looked at the ocean and was like, man, these fish are talking trash to me. I need <laughs> to go catch every one of them. I think that's what he did. That <laughs> fish looked at me funny. I'm gonna go catch it. <laughs> but yeah, fifth, there was a the first place reeled in a fish that was 494 pounds.
0: Joe, you said that the boat was named Catch 23 because he catches fish. I, I do. You, it's not a literary reference to Catch 22, is it?
1: I would imagine that also was, uh, was kind of where where he went with it. I think it's a, a
0: triple entendre. Okay. I just want to make sure that we, touch, that we don't sound like idiots and that we touch the literary reference.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Hudson reads this uh, book series called Dog Man. Okay. And the titles of some of the books, are, they're funny play on words that he would never understand. Like one is Dogman Tale of Two Kitties. Because okay. the the bad guy's a cat, right? Uh, one of them is Lord of the Fleas.
0: <laughs>
1: one of them is ca- uh, Fetch Twenty Two.
0: Would you uh, have you read these books to him?
1: I haven't read. He reads them. He they're at a level where he's able to read them, so I don't have to read them to him. I've I've kind of overheard some of them. They're a little morbid because it starts off with the the dog man is a cop, okay, and It started off with a real person, a real human cop who had his canine counter or had his canine buddy with him, and they get into an accident where they have to sew the dog's head onto the cop's body and create Dog Man. Oh, my. Yes. It's by the same guy that does uh, Captain Underpants, the uh, the book series there. So yeah. if you're okay. familiar with that, uh, that's the same person, and all the illustrations look the same there. So that's uh, – yeah, if you're – if, I'm sure if there's anybody listening who has kids around Hudson's age, around seven, I'm sure they're also very familiar with the uh, the Dogman books. So that's all we have for uh, for Crack Slippers today, Andy. We uh, we have uh, lunch with Claves and Joe Monday, 1230. So hopefully everybody has a chance to tune into that and uh, give that a listen, a watch. I don't, I'm don't. going to tell Claves I think we need to try to bring a guest in and see if we can do that and have the three of us all on screen at the same time. I'll see what, uh, what kind of numbers... Members, what kind of booking power he might have, and see what we can pull off for the uh, for the show this uh, this upcoming Monday. But I want to thank my guests on Absolutely. the show today: Bob Carpenter, uh, John Kelly, and Earl Austin Jr. I want to thank them for jumping on the show, and all of our uh, fine sponsors on the program as well. Andy, you golfing this weekend?
0: Joe, I don't have any tee times yet, but I'm sure I'll uh, I'm sure I'll get the sticks out. I'm sure you will as well. A, a beautiful week on the uh,
1: on the horizon. Andy, thank you again for uh, for being on the uh, the show. We will talk to you next week. So I am uh, Joe Roderick for Weekend Joe, driven by Munganass St. Louis Acura and Munganass Alton Toyota, right here exclusively on ClaibesOnline dot com. Have a great weekend, everybody. Weekend Joe, driven by Munganess St. Louis Acura here on... ClavesOnline.com now the exclusive home of Weekend Joe. Hey, St. Louis Acura has received the Precision Team Award 28 times more than any other Acura dealership in the United States. They have been serving the St. Louis area since 1986, located at 13720 Manchester Road in St. Louis. They are your premier realtor of new and used Acura vehicles In the nation, that is Munganess, St. Louis Acura, the title sponsor here of Weekend Joe, now on clavesonline.com.